0: that was you know that's why i like san francisco it's just full of the oddest people who all have ability to you know connect to each other
1: that was ron turner of last gas publishing i'm jeff and this is in san francisco every week on this podcast you'll hear from small business owners artists and san franciscans from all walks of life telling stories sharing personal histories and trying to put into words what makes this city so special. Welcome to Episode 28, Part 2. In Part 1, Ron told stories about growing up in the Central Valley. He moved to San Francisco in 1967, and a few years later, launched Last Gasp EcoFunnies. In this podcast, he talks about starting the business that would go on to publish many books and underground comics titles. He also shares stories of Timothy Leary and Warren Hinkle, Here's Ron.
0: So then I was like making like, you know, 50 bucks from unemployment. and But it was a little harder to get unemployment then. You had to uh, actually go out and visit places to get jobs and get things signed and come up with lists. And it finally dawned on me, if I went to some place that everybody was going to, they wouldn't keep records because it cost them too much money to keep track of all these people. So I guess So that was a good thing to figure out finally. But we were doing more and more. Uh, my girlfriend at the time had been Cesar Chavez's uh, secretary, and she headed up some of the grape boycotts and um, down the valley. And when I'd worked down there, I'd been very, very partial to the farm workers. And, of course, through our theaters, we, we used to sometimes carry 16-millimeter movie projectors out to the labor camps and show Movies for the farm from the enlightened farmers. There were some enlightened farmers. Um, so, you know, people like, uh, again, go back to Tracy Desjardins, her dad, Bill, uh, only they pronounce it Desjardins down there in the valley. Uh, we all were in high school together at Dos Palace High. And he's a farmer, and uh, but enlightened. You know there were a lot of good people who tilled the soil. I I, got to tell you a story. Tracy one time was uh, we I don't really know her very well. uh, Made cookies with her at Jean's and by Christmas Jean Salazar, and but so I'm with my wife Carol and we went to some dinner Mm -hmm. celebration at Jardinier, and I noticed that on. This one of the specials was pheasant, so I wrote a little note, sent it back to the kitchen. Said, uh, hey Tracy, said Is it, is your pheasant up to the fireball standards? She shot out like a like a jack in a box out of the kitchen and looked around, expecting to see some smart ass friend from Fireball that she grew up with. Looked around, didn't see anybody she knew and went back in. And later we got a complimentary dessert with a little note attached. She says, No. That pheasant is not up to fireball standards. My father didn't shoot it.
1: I am gonna miss Jardinier, that was that place of special.
0: Oh but. there's so many great restaurants. I always liked Henry's Hunan.
1: I like Henry's. My
0: wife Carol found that place and we all went down there for years when it was on Kearney, a little tiny place. And the menu was about twenty pages long, most of which was history of Hunan province and about Mao Zedong. And Henry Chung had been in the foreign service in China when World War II broke out, and he had a very, very uh, interesting background as a result of that. And he ended up getting most of his family through Houston and then into San Francisco. Anyway, we made friends with Henry, and I, I helped him get a, his uh, cookbook uh, published and it was uh, the New York magazine had listed as the best Chinese restaurant in the world. Well, you couldn't have a better cover slash than that. And nobody was into at that time into really hot Chinese cooking, mm-hmm. if if they weren't hot Chinese people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we became good friends with Henry, and Henry is one of the few older guys, let alone an older Chinese guy. Who liked underground comics? So I used to go over with uh, Tim Boxell, who's now teaching at the Art Institute and
1: actually the Academy of Art. Excuse me, the Academy of I, Art. I work with Tim a little bit. I you work, work with I, Tim? Okay. Well, I work there. Yeah.
0: Tim and Good guy. I and Greg Irons used to go over and bring Henry a big stack of underground comics and have a great lunch with him occasionally. miss that guy. He he died a couple of years past. His nineties. So, uh, but that was, you know, that's why I like San Francisco. It's just full of the oddest people who all have the ability to, you know, connect to each other. We started off officially as Last Gasp EcoFunniest Company. And, um, and that was in 1970. We started having meetings in 69. So 50 years ago, we were starting to have meetings about publishing a benefit book for the Berkeley Ecology Center which was the first ecology center in the country, and of course needed funding. And we thought the coolest thing around was underground comics. And if we wanted to pitch a message to uh, youth about ecology, let's use what's the best thing that's being let in through the retinal uh, bars at that time. So we chose underground comics, and then the only problem was we had to figure out how to get the money to pay for it. And then what to do after we got it, and how do we get artists, and where do things get printed, how do they get bound up, and how do they get distributed? It was all very curious. So, um, I took on the job of doing this, and um, when we finally got the comic book done in time to be sold on college campuses for the first Earth Day, uh, the Berkeley Ecology Center had changed by much of the staff had gone away by in this, you know, eight months since we'd started the project with them. And they didn't know what to do with it. We said, well, it's your benefit book. And they said, well, we'll take 10 copies. I said, 10 copies? I printed 20,000. Are you crazy? So anyway, so I went back and they were all in my garage and I had to start selling them. And we come up with the name Last Gasp, because we were trying to figure out what the name should be for the comic book, and there were many choices. And one of them, the choices of the comic book, that that one was called "Slow Death Funnies." And this was a great comic. It was full of every, every one of the cartoonists. Every time I handed them a script about something, they'd say, oh, "That's okay. I already got my own." You know, the, the smart people were already into what was going on ecologically fifty years ago, and. Uh, So you'd only hope that people have learned a little bit more since then. And so uh, we needed a company name, so the runner-up was Last Gasp EcoFunnies. So I took that for the company name. And fast forward, here we are now.
1: Fifty years later?
0: Well, yeah, it was uh, 1970, Earth Day, that we went out. We we picked just because it was fun. Our Founders' Day at April first. It seemed like a perfect April Fool's Day because it's a pretty foolish idea. What am I doing now? I've got a garage full. Of, just lost my job at Kaiser Hospital. Nixon I cut the the funds for um, the science things as the Vietnam War started to collapse. And although there was much more war to go, but it was already start. You know, you could see that it was not where to go. It was cost the economy everything and it had to be paid for and uh if you the cover is by the late great greg irons who was a poster artist and a cartoonist and a uh he he knew all kinds of he was a a smart guy he became a tattooist and his vision was as we since we just landed on the moon and 1969. His vision was: this, here is a monster rising off the earth where it's already eaten part of the earth. And in its hair are the symbols of all the corporations that it represents. And then it's got one long arm reaching out and, you know, just touching its evil claw onto the moon. So that was pretty much. And we had the. Uh, all kinds of ideas in there. And I was so happy that Robert Crumb did a piece for it. He, he, You know, everybody kind of, it's hard to predict the future. And he predicted that Flaky and Mr. Natural, would be out on the Golden Gate Bridge together discussing why Flaky was going to go jump off the bridge in his depression. And uh, but, so Flaky jumps, but he lands in mud because by this time the oceans have dried up. So Crumb's vision of the future at that point was that it was going the other way. We, somehow we'd lose all our water, and so it was kind of interesting. But both you know, basically the same effect either way.
1: What was next?
0: Well, the next thing that came out was uh, Trina Robbins, who's a wonderful cartoonist and just a a, a tornado of strength. Is uh. Uh, got hold of me and said you, you know Ron this uh, there were too many women in slow death and she was doing a strip called Belinda Berkeley in a newspaper a paper underground newspaper for women in Berkeley called it ain't me babe mm. and uh, she says when are we going to do a women's comic I says I want to do a women's comic very badly and she says, well, I've got one almost put together. I said, well, fine, I'll be over in an hour. And I came over and handed her $1,000 and picked up the artwork, and we were off to do It Ain't Me, Babe, the comic book. So um, so that was like an all-women's comic. And it's, uh, I mean, I, mean I, I enjoy sex and violence as much as the next perv, but... Um, I tried to do a lot of books that were more socially relevant and maybe in a slightly arcane way, but they were relevant. I mean, we're going to, like we did a a series called Skull Comics, horror comics, but, you know, use some good writers, you know, use, use, uh, you know, really good, if you're going to do that story. And we switched Slow Death over to a science fiction format because That's basically all about ecology anyway. So uh, we did other books uh, over the years. Amputee Love, which is written and drawn by amputees. Or not drawn, the husband of an amputee. And um, to my deepest pleasure, you see uh, San Francisco's nursing school ordered 300 copies because they were getting all these Vietnam War spinal injury people back and whose, uh, you know, genitals wouldn't work anymore. And they wanted to show that, in fact, uh, disfigurement, if your genitals did work or you could get them to work, uh, disfigurement didn't have to be a a, a, a a deal breaker. You know, you could still be a sexual being, which was very important. And, but of course, you know, we get a lot, a lot of you also opened the Pandora's box. Um, I got 300 letters from, uh, I would say, real pervs who were into, well, let's what's a perv anyway? Well, anyway, people who were into amputees. Almost all were men. Fet- Fetishists. Fetishists. Almost all were men. And uh, some of the stories were hilarious. One of them included a a Polaroid of a woman in a short dress in front of a screen door with the sunshine coming through, so she was, her under under parts were revealed through the thin dress, but you could really see that it was a guy in drag with his leg tied up behind him from the knee, so it looked like he was from the knee. It was like yeah, please. police. I had I had some florist, millionaire florist, flew in on his private jet. From Chicago to SFO to come around with a story of his son was married to an amputee woman and blah, blah. He wanted to help him see that there was some, you know, legitimate sexual uh, attraction. And I said, okay, well, here's how many copies do you want? And this guy was smelled of rose water and uh, money. And he opened his wallet and pulled out, there was a batch of. 100 crisp 100 dollar bills and he handed me a hundred dollar bill and I said like I don't have change Christ don't you have six dollars for three copies (laughs) you know and at that time that was the first two dollar underground comic and it was like oh god what's the matter with this moron so (laughs) he didn't mind the thing he gave me the hundred dollar bill and said thank you left he was like you know so happy He's going to, you know, beat his putt all the way back to Chicago, I guess. (laughs) Fuck. Well, I had a lot of fun with uh, Tim Leary. Uh, We became friends after he tried to, uh, he was such a scoundrel. I loved him. (laughs) But when he was in prison one time, he sent me a, a letter and a manuscript. And I thought, okay. Well, years later, I found out that he, had sent out to 18 different publishers, slightly changing each uh, storyline. And somebody else bid on it and got, you know. Anyway, uh, he and I became friends. And he he had this uh, book called uh, Surfing the Conscious Net. And he wanted it done like in a comic book. And he had all of his buddies in there, like Susan Sarandon was the character and all these other people you know, he, he'd been married, like, I think, seven and a half times or something. Like that. I don't know. He's like, Tim had all, and he had a lot of Hollywood wives. Uma Thurman even is a, like, was, he was married to her mother for a while. I don't know. But he, um, when I was working at Kaiser, one of, I was doing studies on allergies and emotions, but we gave these various tests to the people who were there. And one of them was the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, and so as a psychometrist, you know, b- being a test giver, I had to study a lot about these things. I also gave Rorschachs. I had to read over a hundred books on the Rorschach. To, the
1: inkblot. Uh, test, the inkblot right? test, yes,
0: and the thing with Larry was is that he used to work at Kaiser when he was doing the Minnesota, when he was working on the Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory. So I got access to all the files. So I get to go back and read all these things. The, the craziest thing was is that the uh, Dr. Feingold was the uh, head of the allergy department and he hated hippies. But he was really a smart guy. He started discovering all these uh, allergies that people got to things like number four yellow dye, uh, which was if someone was taking a birth control pill that had that dye and it might get an allergy. And he was starting to figure this stuff out. And also children's food allergies was his big things. But he hated hippies. So I had long hair and a beard. And I had to have access to his office because I, sometimes I needed to find some reference book and he'd see me in there, and he'd start screaming, there's a hippie in here, there's a hippie in here, security. And i have to run, everybody knew this, that I worked there, except him. He didn't know that I worked, they wouldn't tell him that I worked for him, because he wouldn't have allowed it. And so they'd all hide me, I'd be done you know, in closets and things, or under desks and shit, every time he could see me. But he was like, it got to be a really interesting game. But Larrys stuff then if I'd be at a party with Tim, it'd be kind of fun. We'd be talking about his comic book and how much fun he had with it, and I mean, it sold enough to pay for itself. That was the good thing. And we had a, a, a grand time at parties, and we get into. But sometimes parties can be kind of boring, especially when there's people are doing fan fan nutty crazy stuff. And so we would just start talking about early learning theory and like Stumpf and and some of the early 1800s psychologists in Germany. And, boy, you want to know a no way to turn off people fast? Speak a lot of foreign German words at them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you must—you were fascinated by that stuff?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, and I was psychology was really... Yeah. I loved it, still love it. It's just, uh, it's very interesting uh, the the mind and how it works, and also the things that really trigger it. You know, this, you know, my my mind is always clicking along. On the way over here today, I was thinking about like, what if certain animal species had developed their own technologies, and we're living now alongside us with their technologies and our technologies, and somebody from our group would be saying. Well, you know, the, these foxes are getting in our way. You know, we have the, the they they want to have these little pathways, and they're, they're messing up with our streets. And uh, and I'm saying, but then the foxes might also be thinking like these humans are out of control. I think we should be you know looking at limiting, uh, you know, their late night lighting and all that. And you know, so this just kind of was like a beginning of a thought. How could this really work out down the road? You know.
1: I think all the animals are already thinking that about humans.
0: Well, I think they're thinking about life without humans. Yeah, as is, they right. Is they're right, and it's, it's fucking it, everything up. Oh yeah, we've we're on the fast track, all right. We're, uh, I would I wouldn't shed a tear if uh, the whole thing came to an end. I'll tell you, we've ruined so many uh, incredible biological experiments already. It's. Who give us the right, you know,
1: and yet here we are at the edge of the continent. This place we love and hate to love and love to hate called San Francisco. Yes, yes, you touched on it a little bit, but um, do you want to talk uh, now that you've been here 50 plus years? Yeah, what is it about San Francisco that you love?
0: Well, I remember when I first came as a kid up on Hyde Street, there were all these movie studios. And my dad, as a, a exhibitor, theater exhibitor, would come up and book movies for his theater. And we would stay at the, since he had been a Marine in World War II, stay at the Marines Memorial Club. And so as a kid, it was like amazing to me. They had these water glasses that had a wrapper around them, and the water all smelled strange because they were putting a lot of chlorine in back then. And uh, I remember I was so fascinated looking out of the Marines Memorial Club window one day, and there was street excavation. Pacific Gas and Extortion was burrowing into the pavement, and the dirt was all red-colored. It just never dawned on me that we were all on dirt. You know, this whole thing was on dirt. It was amazing.
1: A lot of sand, too.
0: Yeah. Well, then you know, when I came up... Number of times that way, and we had to wear a suit in San Francisco. You only wore a suit to church in Fresno or Fireball or Mendota or Five Points or, well, Five Points didn't have a church, Huron uh, or Kalinga. Um, but in San Francisco, you're supposed to wear a suit downtown. You got to be very dressed. This is like late 40s, early 50s.
1: Because it's special. Or... It's
0: special. Women wore white gloves when they came downtown even the even the people begging on the sidewalks with you know little on, on rollers with no legs asking for money wore a suit and tie you know everybody dressed up downtown no bums around here guys out of their out of luck you know they're out hard hard times but no bums you know, so um The the culture you know the fabric of the of the culture was you know people were like uh, you had the feeling in San Francisco that everybody was farting through silk you know and if you wanted to be like them you'd fart through silk yourself and it was just pretty interesting to me and I came up one time on my own when I was like sixteen. And, I mean, I just really lucked out on things. We came up with the Demolay chapter. A uh, friend Clyde and I got to come along with Chet. And Chet was the chapter dad for the Demolay. And Chet was called Fresno's Most Eligible Bachelor. And we came up and Chet dropped us off at this hotel. And we didn't see him for four more days. Chet was completely gay and he he looked like he'd been road hard and put away wet when he came back to us he was just he was just a mess you know I mean like ripped collar you know, just uh, completely hungover drowsy um, grumpy I'm sure he didn't like the idea of having to sit down and drive for four hours back to Fresno but by Coming up here, I got to stay a week on my own waiting for my dad to come up to do a booking trip for his films. So I had a, an entire week to spend. It's fabulous.
1: What year would that have been? That would have been 50, 56. Okay.
0: And the hotel was the little Salon Hyde, and it was right across the street from the Club Black Hawk. I knew nothing about jazz when I got here. I went over there every night looking my. Freshest 16-year-old Best ordered a Coca-Cola. They let me have it. I sat right in front of the band and had an entire week of Cal Jader and, and Dave Brubeck that I could almost touch their shoes if I reached out to the platform. You know, so that was like brilliant. And in the daytime, I just wandered around San Francisco. I just walked all over, discovered that the uh, we'd come up for the uh, East-West football game. And so I went back through the hate, and I went back to by where the stadium was. I just wanted to see if I could remember how to get there.
1: Was that at Keysar? It was
0: the, the old Kizar Stadium, yeah. And then there was the Keysar, or the, was the Keysar bar. I forget. And the, but anyway, it had been, you know, been a straight bar when we were there. When I came back by; it was a gay bar. So I thought, like, aha! You know, this whole gay scene going on up here is just crazy. And. Um, so, you just got to see and learn things and check it out. And so, you know, I think I was like kind of like already being pulled towards San Francisco as a kid. It was exciting. And you go into these various movie offices, and everybody was like so funny. And we'd see them down in. in you know, in Fresno or Fireball whatever, they drive down every couple of months to show the new pictures, you know, information about the pictures. And then, so I got to know some of these guys a little bit as a kid. And I remember this one guy, he was coming, he was really upset because he couldn't find his car, which he couldn't remember where he parked. He was so drunk, he couldn't remember where he parked it the night before. So the whole sense of alcohol. And then on every corner, there was a liquor store Seemed like in every corner, which it wasn't the same back in the valley. They were hard to find. So the just stuff you know was very interesting. Well, I also lucked out. I had ended up with a good friend about thirty-five years ago, Warren Hinkle, and I started hanging out together. And he was such a super reporter, and we all knew. We had people we knew in common. We knew the Mitchell brothers in common. And uh, so for, what the la- the last, um, for about a 12-year period there, his last 10 years and two years beyond that, we worked on a book called Who Killed Hunter Thompson. And if anybody has a chance to get a copy of that, they want to learn a little about San Francisco. Uh, please get that book. Warren has written a, it's a 544-page book. And it has most of the stuff about Ramparts and Scanlons and Hunter Thompson and the Mitchell Brothers and a whole bunch of other people. And although it's got 44 of Hunter's best friends writing stories about him, it also has a 200-page introduction by Hinkle. Oh so, if you want to learn about San Francisco, I suggest you read that. And uh, did
1: you know Hinkle before the high patch for the?
0: No, he got that as a child. That was a okay. I uh, it was, I think, it was an auto accident. Okay. He had told me one time, but he had kind of a harsh, hard voice to understand. Sometimes, especially late at night after twenty drinks, and uh, and I thought one time that he. would Said that uh, he got stuck with a wire in his eye, but it, Hinkle had 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 lovely nicknames for everyone. His one daughter was H. The other was Boxcar. Uh, his uh, first wife was Denise. Was uh, the brain. His brother-in-law was science. He liked it. I, I got named by Dory Seda, great cartoon artist, Dory Seda, uh, as Ronzo. <laughs> and Hinkle liked that. He would always call me Ronzo after that. So he found that out. And uh, anyway, his dad's nickname was The Wire. And it was because he was, the, that was the family name for the telephone. Hey, the wires for you, and his dad would pick it up. But when I heard him tell the story, it was kind of a mumbled, "Oh, <laughs> You know. So being unable to decipher that particular moment, uh, I thought that he meant that he got stuck in the eye with a wire. <laughs> but it was—I think it was a car accident. I think it was great. He took me to the Philosopher's Club for a drink one night, and we went over there, and we had a drink. And he says, he pointed at a bar stool next to us. He says, yeah, that's the one my father died on. <laughs> I love San Francisco.
1: That was Ron Turner. Join us next week when we'll hear from Mission Creek houseboat resident Margaret Casey. Music for the podcast is by Otis McDonald. Film Photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to learn about some of the stuff we do besides the podcast. All 70-plus episodes live on our website, storiedsf.com, which is also where you can now go to pledge support for the show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show for us. Send comments or suggestions to storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.